Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. Welcome to UCI Law Talk. I'm Stephen Lee. I'm a professor here at UCI Law School, and I'll be your host for this episode. With me today is our friend and colleague, Jennifer Chacon, who is also a professor here at UCI. Uh, she's an expert on immigration and criminal law matters, and we're here today to talk about immigration policy uh, under the Trump administration. Jennifer, it's great to have you here Thanks, again. Stephen. It's good to be back. So a few months ago after the election, but before the inauguration, we did a podcast where we tried to speculate and prognosticate on what immigration policy might look like under a Trump administration. Yep. Uh, today, we're going to talk about some of these policy changes, but before we do, let me just ask you, how have these changes ushered in by this administration stacked up against what you anticipated? Better, worse, or about what you expected? So I think what we're seeing in terms of the recent enforcement memos coming out of DHS, uh, President Trump's executive orders from January 25th, um, and even aspects of the travel ban, it's all in line with what we suspected would happen. Um, and we can talk about some of what we're seeing in those in a minute. So it's about what we would expect. I think what has been unexpected, um, particularly around the travel ban, is the degree of ineptitude with which some of these <laughs> programs have been rolled out. And that has been um, just uh, really uh, sort of amazing to watch, um, to see an administration try to roll out an immigration policy without adequate consultation with the Department of Homeland Security yeah. or the Department of State, um, the chaos that that created on the ground, the litigation opportunities that that created, that was somewhat unexpected. I mean, the sheer number of leaked memos yes. that have come out yes. in the, just the first month, it almost makes you wonder if this is just all by design or if it really is just on account of uh, you know ineptitude or incompetence. It's, it's kind of amazing and dizzying. So I guess that's a natural segue to the to the lawsuits surrounding the Muslim ban. Uh, and I guess a good place to start is what are your thoughts on just the merits of it? In other words, do you see this passing constitutional muster if and when that issue comes before a court? So we saw the travel ban as initially rolled out, which had in it a number of provisions that seem plainly unconstitutional, particularly the provisions that applied to lawful permanent residents, um, which seemed to run afoul of constitutional case law in cases like Flutie and Landon versus Placencia, um, which create burdens on LPRs that seem inconsistent with a constitutional structure. Um, so the, there were clear constitutional problems there. Um, we're now hearing tell that the administration plans to roll out, perhaps sometime today, a new version of the travel ban that avoids some of the most obvious constitutional pitfalls, but that would still target the same seven countries and potentially raise some of the other constitutional questions that the old travel ban raised. And those are the harder constitutional questions. So it seems pretty clear that uh, the litigation strategy has revolved around um, the uh, notion that this is a, a religious ban and one that evinces um, impermissible religious animus, given the Trump Trump's statements about why he was choosing these particular countries, what the objective of his ban was, it doesn't seem far-fetched to say that it is targeting Muslims and that it is religiously motivated and that it is... Far-fetched. That's <laughs> generous. That's generous. <laughs> it, seems, uh, it seems like we have evidence of that. Um, I think the, the arguments are more difficult to make than we might think against the backdrop of the constitutional case law in the immigration context, where some of the commonsensical notions around equal protection and protection of religious freedom that we have in domestic case law hasn't really infiltrated the fabric of constitutional so case I, law I, I, I love that. I love that. And, I, and that's the part of this that's been almost, this is the part that's been a little shocking. So uh, for the 
people who aren't perhaps up to speed on their uh, civil procedure, uh, you know, it's important to note that currently the lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of this law is currently stayed before the Ninth Circuit. So the Ninth Circuit panel had uh, a motions panel uh, that issued a procurium opinion upholding this uh, the stay uh, issued by the district court. And then one of the judges on the Ninth Circuit, as is uh, a judge's right under Ninth Circuit rules, called for the case to be reviewed by en banc proceedings, which is just uh, a larger, more representative panel uh, of the uh, Ninth Circuit. And then uh, upon representations by the federal government, uh, they decided to stay those proceedings uh, as they waited for a new executive order to be issued, uh, and it allegedly is supposed to drop any time today. So for the listening public, you may already have this before you by the time you uh, get to download the podcast. But in any event, we're operating right now on the assumption where we're still waiting for that uh, executive order to, to drop. Now, there are a couple things that I wanted to say in response to Jennifer Chacon's uh, uh, really helpful insights. So number one, the first inquiry that courts make in evaluating whether or not a, an injunctive order should be upheld is the likelihood of success on the merits. And it's important to note that the state of Washington had two claims. So one had to do with the due process claims, and that has to do with all of the placentia, uh, flutie uh, case law that you you talked about. But the other one was religious discrimination piece, and that ties into both the establishment clause and equal protection. But you know, I gave you I gave you trouble a second ago about <laughs> far, calling it far yes, fetched. Uh, but part of what's been interesting is that. You, the state of Washington has cited pub- President Trump's public statements about a desire to implement a ban on, on emissions from Muslim countries. So you never see that kind of uh, you know, loose-lipped uh, you know, reflection on someone's motives or intent because usually people are keeping that under wraps. But because this is floating around in the public domain, the state of Washington were able to point to those statements as evidence of likelihood of success in the merits. Now, uh, the other piece I'll say about that is a sort of irreparable injury piece, and uh, you know, that's a second inquiry. It's like not just whether or not you're likely to succeed, but whether or not the party would be irreparably injured. Uh, and here is where the state of Washington really made all of its arguments about uh, how workers are being separated from their families. I mean, this is uh, you know going all the way back to Che Champagne. You have someone who's a green card holder who has permission to leave the United States under the promise of being able to come back, and then under the Muslim ban, they would have been stranded. And so in that formulation, that's where the irreparable injury came. Uh, you know, one more point about this, and, uh, and uh, I'd love to hear some other thoughts. Um, did you... Have you read the opinion recently? And did you, did you see uh, the citation that the court offered uh, in terms of why they were not going to uh, reduce the geographic scope of the injunction? No. So it's this great, it's this great read. I mean, truly, only immigration junkies would, would catch this. But if you read the order carefully, one of the arguments that the federal government offered was that, well, it is a secondary line of defense. We argue that the state, the, the district court in Washington erred in crafting injunctive of national scope as opposed to one that was limited just to the states of Washington and Minnesota, which were the two parties of interest. What was interesting is the Ninth Circuit responded by saying, well, look, this would run afoul of the interest in a uniform and national immigration policy. Right. Texas v. U.S. They're supporting <laughs> the of Texas versus the United States. And again, for uh, for the uh, you know benefit of our, of our listeners, that was, of course, the case that enjoined the implementation of President Obama's 2014 Deferred Action Program. So for Im- uh, anti-immigrant advocates and, and, and nativists, it was a sort of be careful what you wish, wish for moment. I mean, mm-hmm. it, was, it was really, you couldn't make this stuff up. Yeah. That's right. So th- that so we have the nationwide injunction now, sort of everything frozen pending 
word from the from the administration as to how they plan to proceed. But you do see what's been fascinating is watching um, the Trump administration in some ways work both sides of the boundaries. On the one hand, um, trying to telegraph and very clearly telegraphing and saying to the base that this is a Muslim ban, uh, that this is the ban that was promised, while at the same time taking the position in court that that's not what this is that's at right. all, that this is in fact um, a targeted list of high security concerned countries that just happen to be predominantly Muslim. And watching them walk that line has been very interesting. Yeah, it, in the, I don't know if you listened to the argument, but uh, I, I listened to it uh, with the, um, the three judges, you know, holding the hearing telephonically. And Judge Clifton, uh, you know, a moderate judge in the Ninth Circuit uh, uh, from Hawaii, seemed the most sympathetic to the federal government. I mean, he was pointing out that the ban applied to only seven countries, and he pointed out that empirically uh, only a, a small percentage of the world's Muslim population comes from those countries. So he wondered whether or not it could be characterized as demonstrating anti-Muslim animus. But even he ultimately signed on to right. a pure curium opinion. So I, it does raise a lot of questions as to what will come of this, you know, if and when this goes before the court, which I guess leads to another question. That is, so even if you get this more narrowly construed uh, Muslim ban uh, from uh, the administration, does that resolve all the constitutional issues? No, I don't think it does. In, in some ways, it leaves the most interesting constitutional questions unresolved. So to the extent there is impermissible animus that that's motivating this law, and I think there's lots of evidence uh, from outside the record and from the statements of the administration that there is impermissible animus, it really tees up the question that the courts really haven't had to grapple with or haven't really since Chinese exclusion in some ways, which is what are the bounds of the federal government's ability to discriminate impermissibly on mm -hmm. the basis of of religion when you're dealing with um, exclusion policies? Is there is there no limit at all? Or at the end of the day, when they're acting in ways that are motivated by impermissible animus, does the court have the capacity to step in um, and do something? So it's, I think this is, you know, this will be very, very interesting to watch. Those questions won't and can't be resolved, I don't think, by a new executive order. Yeah. And I also just don't buy the argument that the issue is moot if the executive uh, issues another order because you have all those cases that talk about cases that are uh, capable of repetition yet evading review. And if you allowed an executive order to moot this, and all a president would have to do was just issue and rescind executive order back and forth to avoid any problems with it. That's right. So let's talk about the memos issued by our uh, Secretary for Homeland Security, uh, John Kelly. So these memos came out, they purported to do a number of things. Uh, so what was your reaction to the memos? So I guess the first reaction that I had was, what does it mean to see a signed order coming out of the Department of Homeland Security that the White House says they're still vetting or they haven't quite signed off on? There was a sort of a procedural mystery to the to the rollout of these memos. The memos were clearly intended to effectuate President uh, Trump's executive orders of January 25th and to give guidance to the Department of Homeland Security uh, for the implementation of uh, the directives of that of those two executive orders, um, but. There was this procedural oddity that they that the White House claimed not to have signed off on them or, or to still be reviewing them, which was interesting given that presumably they were going into operation. So the two um, memos uh, do uh, track quite closely with the executive orders of January 25th, and I think in that regard um, there are no surprises. Um, but I think it's important to highlight the way that we do see many of the issues that we had talked about in the previous discussion um, popping up in these memos. So it seems quite clear, based on the read of these memos, uh, that there is a plan to 
uh, significantly, uh, in massively perhaps, expand detention capacity. Um, so detention will be an important tool of the administration in effectuating its immigration policy. And individuals who previously would have been released on their own recognizance or perhaps um, uh, with uh, small amounts of bond will pretty clearly be detained under the new policies. Um, and so we are going to see more reliance on detention in the memos uh, talk about the need to increase detention capacity. Um, and obviously, that requires funding. It's not clear exactly um, what the department can do in the absence of a congressional infusion of cash. But in the meantime, their policy will be to expand detention capacity as much as possible um, and to use that as an enforcement tool. The second thing that we see that I think we knew we would see um, was is um, a, an expressed desire to rely uh, more heavily on states and localities to implement immigration enforcement policies. So under President Obama, there was a real scaling back of the 287G program, which involved cooperative enforcement between the federal government and states and localities, whereby states and localities became federal government actors in some senses for purposes of immigration enforcement. Those memoranda of agreement came under massive fire from immigrant communities, immigrants' rights organizations for being uh, unprotective of the rights of immigrant communities generally, for resulting in racial profiling, um, for resulting in bad arrest practices and detention practices. And so the Obama administration really rolled those back. And you see in the memos um, coming from Kelly's office yesterday uh, the stated intention to expand those policies uh, to the fullest extent possible um, to, to maximize cooperation from states and localities. At the same time that those memos suggest that they'll be phasing out um, funding for uh, for uh, portions of the office that do advocacy on behalf of immigrants. So I think what we see here is a potential perfect right. storm where you get more and more actors engaged in the immigration enforcement uh, uh, system, more and more people with inadequate training um, and perhaps with uh, the wrong motives getting involved in, in this um, enforcement effort, and then really fewer and fewer checks from the federal government to make sure that those um, powers are exercised in ways that are rights protective. Yeah, I was reading this the other day and I saw criminal alien program, I saw ESCOM, I saw 287G, and it's like, felt like I was going to my high school reunion. It was all the I was greatest like, all these hits. people, like, I, I got to see you again? I got to deal with you again? It was amazing. Yeah, uh, ESCOM too. That's right. So, so the Secure Communities Program um, was the program that was rolled out by the Obama administration in 2013. It said that states and localities would, uh, when they made arrests, those that the information from their arrests would be run through the DHS database, and then DHS would, if appropriate, issue detainers and uh, initiate proceedings. And that was also met with uh, significant resistance from states and localities who didn't like this policy and felt it interfered with their relationship with immigrant communities, um, from immigrants' rights advocates and from immigrants who felt like it really strained their relationship with local police. And the Obama administration responded, in some uh, the view of some, inadequately, um, but certainly responded by rolling that program back to something called the Priority Enforcement Program, uh, wherein they said they would really, uh, the, the arrest checks would still happen, but the department would be much more selective in terms of when they chose to exercise their power to ask states and localities to hold, and when they would um, exercise their own um, uh, powers over those individuals and, and seek to remove them. So uh, ESCOM goes away and is replaced by PEP, which looks a lot yeah. like ESCOM, <laughs> um, but is supposed to be more um, uh, selective and is supposed to rely more heavily on prosecutorial discretion by DHS. And what the Kelly memos from yesterday make clear is that that is old news and we're back to secure communities um, where whereby the, that kind of exercise of discretion won't be an important function. Well, and it just feels completely divorced from a lot of the empirical evidence that has been put forth by a lot of people 
people in our yes. community. I'm reading section B, the the section that identifies the resuscitation of all these different programs. And you know, I kept thinking of that great study put out by uh, Tom Miles and Adam Cox right. on how uh, SCOM actually doesn't make communities safer. Right. Uh, so, you know, I, I, again, it makes for great uh, talking points if you're catering to your base, but it's not actually advancing policy in a meaningful way at all. That's right. And in fact, it might be uh, making things worse. You know, uh, well, another portion of the memo that I found really troubling was just in the Part A uh, uh, identification of the department's enforcement priorities. And I think this has yes. gotten some attention, but I think it's worth spending a few moments on this uh, where you see uh, the third paragraph uh, where the DHS announced that we should prioritize um, anyone's been convicted of any criminal offense, and okay, so that's fine, uh, have been charged with any criminal offense that's not been resolved, or have committed acts which constitute a chargeable criminal offense. Right. So I, I gotta say something about this. You know, some people argue that relying on the criminal justice system is, is rational and smart because it identifies immigrants who are most likely to be dangerous and morally objectionable, and you know, there's some issues with that framing, but you know, I think that's an argument that I understand. And the strongest data point in favor of this argument is that the criminal justice system provides procedural protections that aren't available in most other parts of the system. So that, you know, by the time you get a conviction, you have some degree of certainty that this person is, in fact, dangerous or morally compromised. Those of us who study criminal law would bring yes, yes, yes. objections to that. But yes, that I'm is the argument. I'm blocking a lot in the defense. <laughs> right. I'm saying that that's some right. people that's suggest right. that. I'm not, I'm not necessarily buying into that. Uh, so I would say that that's absolutely right. But the data point that is you know, probably... You know, the most useful in defending that position is, again, the conviction. Right. That is a part of some sort of meaningful procedural protections. But when you have this set of priorities that expand well beyond conviction to people who are charged but are still in a situation that hasn't resolved or people who've just committed something, that's right. that totally destroys the strongest defense of that argument at all. Right. So to the extent that there is a position to justify going after criminal aliens, I think that this, this set of priorities is just it totally undermines that position. Yeah, so this this the set of priorities that are articulated in the memo exactly track the set of priorities that were laid out in the January 25th executive order. So there are no surprises there, except to the extent that you might have been hoping for something a little bit more um, circumspect uh, than, than the expansive language that's used in the executive order. But I think you're absolutely right. There are no procedural protections at all. Um, it relies on uh, frontline detection uh, by anyone, really, um, who s suspects uh, potential criminality. And those individuals then are prioritized um, as criminals um, for purposes of enforcement. I think the same sorts of questions can be raised about gang affiliation, um, which, is, uh, which is mentioned several times in the memo and included in the enforcement priority section. Gang affiliation undefined um, and presumably uh, I know it when I see it as a local law enforcement official which um, which again has the potential to be overly ascriptive particularly in, in certain communities of color so I think we should be worried um, that to the extent the criminal justice system ever provided any effective screening function um, in immigration enforcement priorities that breaks down uh, the way that these enforcement priorities have been rolled out I think what's interesting about the memo is it it, it does at the end of the day it it rescinds all prior enforcement priority memos, but it does exclude DACA, which we mm -hmm. can talk about in a moment, and, and excludes the DAPA memo. So we have those sort of put off to the side, um, DAPA non-operative, of course. Um, so, but then it says, after rescinding all of the other priorities and then listing this very, very broad uh, group of individuals who might be um, prioritized under the new memo, it does contain this language in there that says, we should really, because we have scarce resources, we should prioritize. And then it lists a series of sections uh, that include um, the criminal grounds for exclusion and removal, 
tackle uh, the national security grounds for exclusion and removal. Um, and so we can see that they're sort of in some ways yeah. uh, sort of making the nod to the fact that they don't have the resources to deport anybody, that the Obama-style priorities and recent entrants, again, also in this right. list, right, that basically the same priorities that Jay Johnson identified are the purported uh, priorities for their own enforcement policies because you can't deport everybody. So there, that's interesting. And what makes this, I think, more problematic is because there's not any effort to sort of um, define that class of people narrowly and carefully. It's sort of a free-for-all. Almost anybody could be identified as uh, someone who's a priority based on crime, uh, the way crime is defined in that memo. I think anybody has committed some act that could be chargeable as a criminal offense, given the way that statutes That's are right. written. Right. Um, so it's it's a set of priorities that sort of lacks priority. And I think what this does is effectively uh, uh, unleashes agents yep. who have felt constrained in the past by priorities um, to essentially operate in a universe where they are unconstrained. For those agents who have always exercised discretion, um, will it's likely that they'll continue to do so, but this sort of creates an opening for those who are the least likely to exercise discretion in a meaningful way and allows them uh, the opportunity to bring pretty much anybody who's removable under the rubric of a priority. That's right. I, I think that ultimately it has an aggrandizing effect that's experienced most acutely by ICE prosecutors and then certainly ICE agents who are out in the field. I think that's unmistakable, uh, an unmistakable consequence flowing from this. So let's go ahead and transition to uh, another topic that's been getting some attention in uh, immigration uh, uh, law circles, and that is removal proceedings that have been initiated against a handful of DACA beneficiaries. And I just think, generally speaking, this raises a larger question of what is the state uh, of DACA now? What can we expect moving forward? So maybe a good place to start is, you know, what have you heard about how DACA recipients have been treated in these removal proceedings? So what we see in the memos is and is that so far um, there's been no executive order rescinding DACA, notwithstanding Trump's promise to do that on day one. Trump now says, as he said um, shortly after the election, this is a troubling issue for him. He's not really sure how he wants to deal with it. It's certainly a yeah. He loves these kids. It's, that's, what he, that's what he says. Um, <laughs> and uh, but I think so. It's definitely a politically fraught issue, and you can see that the uh, Department of Homeland Security memos that issued yesterday uh, walk around that issue um, and say that that's not what they're discussing um, in these enforcement memos. So DACA has a clear carve out, um, which means that t- unless and until the president does something about the program, it continues to exist, um, and those individuals are at least potentially subject to greater protections. Of course, the problem is, and this is what we're witnessing, it's very easy to category jump under the broadly defined um, criminal category that the the Trump administration is pursuing here. So uh, we have heard about individuals who are DACA recipients um, being detained by ICE. In one case, it sounds like uh, ICE was there with a warrant for somebody else, um, and this individual who was in the home uh, was arrested at the same time, notwithstanding Mm -hmm. the fact that the individual had papers demonstrating uh, DACA. The purported justification is gang affiliation, and I think this is one that we'll probably see again and again, because gang affiliation requires no paper, right? Right. It doesn't require a criminal conviction. It doesn't require a record. Um, And so... uh, 
then if, if a story about gang affiliation can be told in any way, that becomes a reason to category shift. So someone moves from a protected DACA uh, recipient to an unprotected um, priority right. uh, for enforcement. The second case um, w involved an individual in San Antonio who purportedly had a small amount of marijuana. Again, you can see the category jump. So this person who was a deferred action recipient is now uh, committing acts that are potentially chargeable as a crime. That would be a priority for removal under the current administration's enforcement priorities. So the category jumpers. So I would say in theory, um, DACA recipients <coughs> have thus far been unaffected um, by the orders, and that's certainly how they're framed. In practice, DACA recipients, like everybody else, um, is increasingly vulnerable under the orders as they've been framed, and that would include lawful permanent residents, pre residents present on, on uh, non-immigrant visas, and, and any individual who's unauthorized who now might potentially fit into this more broadly defined category of priorities. And, and we should be clear that for those out there listening, uh, trying to figure out you know, where DACA fits within the uh, you know, universe of immigration priorities, thus far the anecdotal evidence we've seen suggests that DACA recipients are not the direct targets of efforts. It seems that in both the cases in Texas and Seattle, they were sort of uh, collateral damage or incidental arrest, uh, arrest to other primary targets. Uh, at the same time, I'm for all the reasons you highlighted, it's not as if uh, it creates this sort of immunity card right in the moment of confrontation with the ICE officer. So it's certainly something that people should be aware about, aware of, but it's not something that I don't think yet uh, should be cause for alarm. Uh, I, I should say that generally speaking, though, I do wonder how the government plans to initiate these because, you know. Everyone knows that you know, due process protects you uh, from arbitrary deprivations of, of uh, property and, and liberty. And there's this long case of Supreme Court cases that suggest that uh, government-conferred benefits can create a kind of property or liberty interest that uh, is protectable under that clause. And it seems clear to me that deferred action very much does that. I mean, it provides individuals with work authorization, which allows you to, to work and build a career and there are a lot of cases that show that those are protected property interests. Similarly, reputation, if if you are outed as someone who's undocumented and someone who doesn't have that ability, that also is a protectable liberty interest. So uh, it's not clear to me how this fits in with a larger strategy in terms of efficient allocation of resources on the government side. But in any event, uh, that's what's happening right now. Right. I should also say the other thing, too, about this, is, and I, this is a point I just I can't emphasize enough when I talk to people about DACA and immigrants generally, and that is, I think more than anything, these sort of anecdotal uh, arrests of dreamers have created the opportunity to show how reductive these labels are. So we shouldn't take this as just another opportunity to double down on dreamers are the great immigrants and we should rally behind them. I mean, of course we should do that, but I think generally we should rally behind immigrant community generally. I mean, a lot of these programs are just mean-spirited, inefficient, arbitrary. Uh, and so just because someone is not a, a, a dreamer, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't care any less about the fact that they're now being targeted by these new new shifts in policy. Yeah, I think if anything, these uh, moments that we've seen over the last couple of days where um, DACA recipients have been caught up in enforcement efforts highlights that w if you buy into a narrative that s separates uh, criminals from others, you wind up with a category of criminals that can be expanded to encompass people that you formerly thought were protected. So there's a real danger to buying into those tropes, um, especially when the categories are as ill-defined as they are in these enforcement priority memos. Yeah, and I should, I should also say, too, a statistic that I just recently learned of was that over the last 10 years, unauthorized migration has decreased by 65 percent. Right. So, you know, again, to the extent that people think of these shifts in enforcement policy as something that's necessary 
to deter migration? It just doesn't really map onto the empirical realities at all? Yeah. So these memos, um, just like the executive orders that prompted them, uh, reflect a high degree of uh fear and uh, and concern about unauthorized migration as a national security risk and as a growing problem. And in fact, there's one point in the memo uh, where it compares the statistics of unauthorized arrivals in 2016 to 2015 and notes a, about a 10,000 uh, number increase. Uh, and the reason they're comparing to 2015 is because 2016, 2015, we are at record lows right. um, for people right. arriving at the border without authorization. The, if you compare these numbers to the 1990s to the 1980s, you will see how minuscule uh, the flow of unauthorized migrants is at the southern border. The idea that this is now suddenly a massive uh, national security threat because more Central Americans, 10,000 more, came right. in 2016 versus 2015 is just specious in the context of the broader flow of migration from the south. We we are at a point in time when this really isn't a pressing concern, and we ought to be thinking about how to uh, how to really help to integrate populations that have been here for a really long time. That should be our focus, and instead, our focus is now on how we're going to get rid of some of a population that's been with us for a really long time, and that just seems to me to be a wrong-headed national security concern. Uh, I, that last point is a great one in that um, you know people have been here a long time, and so your, your status changes accordingly. I mean, the court has said that in a number of instances, and I think that it also comports with common sense, uh, which is part of the reason why I've been so encouraged by this move towards universal representation uh, that uh, localities like Los Angeles and Santa Ana have been putting forward, this idea that you know, no immigrant should go through removal proceedings without the benefit of counsel. As, as you know and many listeners know, uh, the right to counsel, appointed counsel, exists only in the criminal context right. and in very limited context beyond that, certainly not in the immigration context. Uh, and of course, the statistics are, are really astounding in terms of the outcome differentials. People are six times more are six times more likely to get relief if they have uh, an attorney immigration proceedings. They're four times more likely to get bonded out. You have increased fairness. The outcomes are more accurate. Uh, you know, our clinic has really been doing a lot with the other clinics in the community like Western State and um, other organizations like OCOIU and Endelon. Uh, and, and those are, again, all very predictable sort of participants in this movement. But the other thing that I found really encouraging is that it seems that a lot of the local bar associations and private attorneys have also tried to step it up. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, I think that there's a lot to be discouraged by. At the same time, locally here in Orange County, I'm, I'm seeing a lot that, uh, you know, give me some hope for the next few years. Yeah, I think there is a recognition that when you're talking about removing people who have been here for a long time, you're talking about removing breadwinners. You're talking about right. separating parents from children. You're talking about decreasing a support network for U.S. citizen children, and that that has costs for communities and localities and counties, um, and that if the person really has a valid claim to relief from removal, then it's less costly for the county to assist that person in gaining that relief from removal than it is to have that person removed with all of the attendant costs that that separation will um, entail. And so we've seen jurisdictions like Los Angeles move toward uh, universal representation on the theory that it's going to be cost-effective and community enhancing for them. And I think that I hope that we'll see that move um, in other places as well. I think that's the right answer. The one other thing that I'll say, I guess the, the other concern that I have coming out of these memos is we do see um, a clear intention for the department to rely very heavily on uh, 
deportation strategies that do not require a hearing before an immigration court. So significant expansion of proceedings under Section 235, um, which are administrative only. They go uh, through a, a DHS agent and then with appeal to an immigration judge, but never uh, to a court. Um, so those uh, those proceedings are meant to be streamlined and to ensure that you don't uh, actually, in most cases, even get to an immigration court. Um, and we see, uh, because of the increased reliance on detention, a desire to get people to stipulate to removal or in the cases uh, involving individuals with criminal record, perhaps administrative removal under Section 238. And all of those are mechanisms by which um, DHS can get people removed from the country without actually uh, these immigrants having their full day in court. And the memos and the executive orders that they implement were clearly intended to do as much of that as possible. And this is where sort of the intervention of counsel at early stages when it's possible will be critically important. But also, uh, we need to sort of be focused on making sure that there is a right uh, to counsel um, that is enforced in these early stage proceedings, because this is where the rubber is going to meet the road, I think, for the next few years um, as this administration rolls out its deportation plans. Well, I'm sure there'll be more for us to talk about <laughs> in just the next month or so, so we'll have to do this again. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California Irvine School of Law.